0: Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating.
1: It seems promising until you start listening.
0: When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com
0: and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and I'm joined today by a special guest host, Joe McCormick. Joe, say hello. Hi. You totally cannot follow instructions. I said hello, and you said hi. Uh, Joe, of course, is one of my co-hosts on another show, Forward Thinking, and so Joe, I am so thankful you could join me here today. Lauren, of course, is is out on vacation right now, so Joe kindly agreed to step in, and I, I gave Joe the the the. The ability to choose whatever topic he wanted to, to pick as long as it wasn't something that we had, you know, covered extensively in tech stuff in the past. So Joe, what would you like to talk about?
2: Well, um, on forward thinking, we usually talk about the future in That's one true. way or another. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I wanted to go in completely the opposite direction and talk about the technology of the past. Oh, okay. And I started thinking, hmm. I wonder what's the oldest computer that we know about. Oh,
0: I gotcha. So we're talking 1946 with ENIAC, right? That computer that you would end up programming with lots of plugs and switches. Not at all. Wow. No. So wait, are you, you're saying it's older than that? Older. Okay, all right, well fine. How about the 1942? That's the uh Atanasoff-Berry computer or ABC, which was built at Iowa State College, which is now a university obviously. But uh it was uh, the there was a patent dispute actually that was uh decided in the United States government about whether ENIAC or the ABC computer were first, and ultimately they said that it uh, uh you could not have anyone to claim uh they were the ones to invent the computer. That's the first one, right? ABC computer. No. Okay, all right, 1941 we're starting to get a little fuzzy here, but all right, so Conrad Zeus builds the Z3 computer, and that was also the the same year when the first bomba was built you know one of the the devices meant to help decrypt German uh, messages. That's it, right 1941. No. All right. 1939. George Stibitz completes the complex number calculator, the CNC, at Bell Telephone Laboratories. We just finished talking about Bell Labs. This has got to be it. And even in the first demonstration, he used teletype so that he could program this remotely over special telephone lines. So it was the first remote computer as well. So that's it, right? I think you need to think less electricity. Fine. 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 1837. The analytical engine, Charles Babbage, he designs this, never finishes it in his lifetime. But of course, that is the device that Ada Lovelace, the enchantress of numbers, had possibly even created computer uh, programs for algorithms where she envisioned a time where you could encode things like music and poetry into mathematics. That's it. The, the analytical engine. OK, so we're going to talk about that.
2: No, you're so, you're about to. 2,000 years off. Say what? (laughs) Not not about, almost. About about 1,800 years off.
0: Okay, so what are you talking about?
2: I'm talking about something that is called the anti. Antiki- oh, we're going to have this problem the whole time. Oh, Antikythera the, mechanism. Oh, the
0: Antikythera mechanism. Yes, the Antikythera mechanism. Or- also
2: known as the Antikythera mechanism. Yeah,
0: yeah it all depends on the or you know, which pronunciation you follow. But Antikythera seems to be fairly commonplace. So we're going to go ahead and use that one and probably switch off without even thinking about it. All right, I know a little bit about this. But um. I guess before we talk about this mechanism, maybe we need to say, what the heck is Antikythera? For anyone who is not familiar with the, uh, the geography of Greece, you may not know this, this refers to a place.
2: Yeah, it's an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and if you, um, if you imagine you're looking at the Mediterranean, it's this small island that's between Crete to the south, mm-hmm. and the Peloponnesian Peninsula up to the north, so the mainland of Greece, and it's right there in the middle, um, there's a bigger island just called Kithera, and this is a smaller one offset from it called Antikythera. So
0: if Antikythera and Kithera were to collide, would, it would just destroy one another. Yeah. yeah. Total positronic reversal. Annihilation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them about the Twinkie. So, uh, you know, joking aside, does that mean that this is where that mechanism was, was made? Um. No, probably
2: not. This is where the mechanism was discovered. Oh, and okay. And that's how it got its name.
0: Gotcha. So someone was walking around Antikythera one day and they stubbed their toe and, oh, what's this? And found the world's oldest computer. No, it's much creepier. Oh. Um,
2: well, okay. So the story goes <laughs> like this. Around the year 1900, there was a group of sponge divers who right. were uh, off the coast of Antikythera and they were doing their diving, I guess, yeah. whatever sponge divers do. They probably. were
0: gathering sponges.
2: Gathering sponges yeah. to wash all their dishes. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so they were doing their thing. But apparently one of the divers came up to the surface and he was like, uh, guys, there are dead women lying <laughs> all over the bottom of the ocean. There's a
0: bunch of naked dead ladies at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Uh,
2: Sounds creepy, but Elias actually.
0: Elias Stadiatos. Yeah. Uh,
2: actually, what he was seeing were statues. There yes. They were bronze and marble statues. That were part of the payload of a almost well, I guess about exactly two two thousand, two thousand year, year old, old ship wreck. Yeah. Of a ship yeah. that was a Roman ship, a large Roman ship carrying a lot of cargo, much of it probably stolen or looted cargo. Right.
0: We're talking at an era just around the time when the Romans were beginning to uh let's say, incorporate the Hellenistic societies into their empire (laughs) by force.
2: (laughs) Um, So it it had all these Greek artifacts on it. Yeah,
0: luxury items, like really expensive stuff in the Greek world. uh, Yeah, and so
2: the idea is we don't know exactly what the ship was doing, but we think it was probably a ship that was returning to Rome from some destination uh, in, in the Greek world.
0: Yeah, and so there are a lot of these Greek artifacts, including currency, uh, they had, uh, like you said, statues, they had uh, lots of pottery Um and they had this this device which was. uh Well, you know, at first at, it was just a lump, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. At first. Well, and of course, it didn't get that much attention early on because there was so much other stuff down there in that shipwreck. Right. So the people who went in to really uh, investigate the shipwreck and take a look and see what was going on. They didn't necessarily realize that there was something truly special, something that was beyond just a uh, uh, special from an artistic merit point of view, but could tell us a lot about how much the ancient Greeks knew about craftsmanship, about astronomy, about math. All of these things would become apparent, but only a hundred years later, right? Yeah. So after the explore, so, so it, it's, it's forgotten for 2000 years, essentially, And then for another hundred years, we don't really know what it is. So it's kind of this lump of corroded bronze in inside what what used to be a wooden box that essentially disintegrated.
2: Yeah. So there's like there's one big remaining lump. Yeah. But there are about 82 fragments in total.
0: Right. Right. So one of those fragments, the main fragment, has Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the what we know of as the, the inner workings of whatever this device was supposed to be. And we know a lot more about it now, but don't want to ruin the surprise.
2: No. uh, But so basically we can say like what it was made of. So what they think now is, okay, this looks like it was some kind of collection of bronze gears inside of a wooden casing.
0: Yeah. In fact, at first they thought it might only be just one gear that somehow was loose from something else. And then they realized, no, there's actually several gears here, but it's all corroded together.
2: Yeah. It's it's sort of like uh, fused into a big Bottom of the ocean snot ball. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, Um, that's very accurate. (laughs) um,
2: But so if if you can imagine, uh, I would call like uh, imagine a mid sized dictionary. Okay, not like a pocket dictionary, but also not that huge one from the library that you couldn't steal. It's on a pedestal. Yeah, Uh, like a like a large hardback dictionary. Right. Um, and it's uh got a wooden casing, so you could open that casing up, and then inside you've got. This corroded mass that uh, that is all this gear formation. Now, mm-hmm. of course, the wooden casing doesn't really remain except in rotted, fragmentary right. form. Right, right. Um, but that's the basic mechanism we're dealing with. And if you start to look at it, you would see this one big gear, um, but... You
0: might wonder, what does this thing do? Yeah. And beyond that, I mean, before we even get to that, like, how old is this thing? Oh yeah. Cause I mean, well, we, we figure that the shipwreck happened sometime around 85 BCE before common eras, because mostly because of the dates that we found. And I say we, but the explorers found on the <laughs> you currency. And I found yeah. The, you know, sometimes Joe and I, we get, we get tired of working on stuff for forward thinking. We pop out to the Greek. Islands and then just go well uh, skin diving. Through amateur archaeology. Yeah, you know, and uh, X by the way does mark the spot. <laughs> no, but we they, by dating things like the currency, they have sort of narrowed the range to around. 85 BCE, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that's how old the device is. No,
2: they think that the device is older than the wreck, So yeah. it wasn't built like right before uh, that. It's generally dated between 100 and 150 BCE. So yeah. it's thought of as a second century BCE device.
0: Right. So so it is an ancient device. Uh, that seems to be about how old it is. Uh, we've got some ideas of where it may have come from. Uh, there were some. There we don't some, know for sure. No, but. we don't. We don't have any. It, the uh, instruction manual for this device was not anywhere to be found. Uh, it was not on the glove compartment of this shipwreck. <laughs> so we can't be absolutely certain. Uh, there's some speculation that maybe it was the Island of Rhodes, which was known for uh, its scholarship and also its craftsmanship. But there are some other options as well that we can talk about. Uh, but beyond that, um, you know, we've talked about what it was made of. We talked about how old it was, but yeah, what, what did this thing do? And at first, it was a real mystery. In fact, for, like we said, like a century, it was a mystery. We just didn't have enough information to be able to determine. We had some
2: yeah, there, wild guesses. There were people who made some good guesses, yeah. but they didn't know the full extent yet. Um, and they, they, they didn't realize initially how awesome this thing was. Right. You
0: know, we can make an argument that this is the oldest computer, which obviously means that it has to do more than just have some inner work, inner working gears that move smoothly. It has to do something beyond that, because otherwise anything that was reliant on gears and clockwork, you could call a computer. But we'll get into exactly what it is that this thing did that kind of makes us consider it more of a computer device, an analog computer than some sort of interesting clockwork. Right. So um, but in general, what we understand it to have been able to do. And in fact, we understand a lot more about it in very recent years than we had for the century leading up to it. Oh, well, I'd say now we've basically had a slam dunk
2: yeah, on this one. Right. And recent, recent revelations have shown us, oh, this is pretty much exactly what
0: it did. Yeah. Which is phenomenal when you think of how badly in repair this thing was. Yeah. But, but ultimately what it does is it's, it's a device that not only tracks celestial events and the movement of celestial bodies in relation to uh, our perspective here on Earth, it also predicts them. So yeah. in other words, you not only can you uh, can you keep track of what's going on, and it could give you an indication of where you would need to look in the sky if you wanted to see something like Mars. Uh, it also would tell you that oh, on this particular date, you will have a full solar eclipse. Uh, it's kind of cool.
2: Yeah, in other words, an astronomical calculator. Yes. Um, it, and so what it would do is it would have <clears throat> a position of the Earth, right, and then um. By moving the hand crank on which, it.
0: Which no longer exists. Yeah. But that's – that's we figure it was a hand crank that uh, that provided the, the uh, kinetic energy to make everything yeah. turn.
2: Uh, by, by moving that, you could see at the same time based on a projected date in the future the positions of the sun – of the moon, um, probably of the planets. We don't know. The planet gears are missing, right? No, yeah,
0: probably the, at least the planets that the Greeks knew about, which included the <laughs>
2: probably not the planets
0: yeah, that didn't probably know about. not those. Not Planet I mean, X. We, we don't think. Well, not Neptune, Uranus, or or if you want to be kind, Pluto. Uh, they they <laughs> they had identified as far out as Saturn. Yeah. Uh, now, if in fact we were to find uh, evidence that it included these other uh, planets as well, that as far as we know they didn't know about, then uh, that would Make the third part of our conversation yeah. get a little more interesting.
2: It also had, yeah, as you said, an eclipse prediction dial. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. really cool. Uh, and it also predicted cultural events. So, yeah, that's that's like, true. like the Olympiad.
0: Right. Because you had a schedule of when that would take place. And so by plotting it against this uh, device and actually inscribing it on the device, you could uh, factor that in. You could see what the, what the celestial events were going to be at a planned future event that way which is kind of handy. Um, but we'll talk specifically. We need to really get into the nitty gritty of how this is possible. And then we'll conclude at the end talking about how we know all of this stuff, because as you're going to learn, it's really complicated to figure out how a device works if you can't actually visualize all the gears when you first get hold of it. Before we get into that conversation, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So we've got a cool sponsor today, Trunk Club. Uh, this is a really interesting service. See, now, a lot of you out there have probably detected the fact that I'm, you know, in many ways, not a typical guy. I'm not big on the football or the sports. But in other ways, I am a very typical guy in that shopping is something that fills me with confusion and terror. But that's where Trunk Club comes in. It's actually a service that guys can use to shop for high-end uh, clothing and you actually get in touch with a personal stylist. And I got to try this out and it was really interesting. The stylist talked to me, got my measurements, my, my clothing sizes and started looking around for stuff that I normally wouldn't shop for myself and ended up picking up some great investment pieces for me to look at. And here's how it works. They, they have you tell them when you want a trunk sent to you. And then they'll send you the trunk, they pay for the shipping, you take a look, you see what you like, you keep what you like, you send back anything else you don't like in the same box. They give you a a return shipping label so you don't have to pay for that. And you just pay for whatever it is you keep. And it's not a subscription service. You just do this whenever you want to get some new awesome clothing. So go to www.trunkclub.com and check it out. All right, we're back. So let's talk about how this device actually tracked celestial events. Okay, so we we know there are all these gears. There's a hand cranky turn. It moves things forward so that you can uh, look at what the celestial conditions are on any given date, or you can even uh, advance it t- so that you can look for a specific celestial event. Let's say you're looking specifically for when is the next eclipse going to occur. So you're not looking to see what the celestial uh, sky, what the sky is going to look like, um, three months from now, you just want to know when the next eclipse is. You could advance the handle from your date and keep doing it until you saw the eclipse uh, information come up and then compare that, see what the date is on the other part of the the indicator. We'll talk about all the yeah. different dials. This
2: would be indicated by a dial. Yes. So it's like a it's like an analog clock face. Yeah, so be spinning around a point to let you know when this is coming.
0: Exactly. And then you could say, oh, all right, so the next eclipse is in, you know, you know, Three months and two weeks from now or whatever. And uh, so there's a lot of different ways you could use this. Well, um, there were about 30, 31 gears that we know of. Probably at, at, least, at least 30 gears. Yeah, at um, least more. Or at least thirty, probably more. Rather. Though it's,
2: I think, hypothesized that there were more to deal with the movement of the planets. Yep,
0: mm-hmm. that are that's just lost, and you know it's not a surprise because again, like I said, when we call it bad repair, I mean you're you think about this. This is like <laughs> essentially the imagine a clock that's been fused into one piece. I mean, an old style gear clock fused into one piece. That's kind of and it's it's opaque, so you can't see these gears that are on the inside just with the naked eye. Uh, but we'll get into how we figured more about this in a little bit, but. So you had all these different dials that would mark different events uh, and different time spans, right? So you would have a dial that would be set up for uh, for just regular keeping of, of a calendar year. But there were also dials that were more attuned to specific celestial cycles. So, for example, there might be a 19-year cycle that's represented by one dial. Another one had, a, a I think, a 75-year dial. And these dials were to refer to things that uh, patterns that would repeat once you hit those time frames. So like every 19 years, this one set of patterns would repeat itself. So that's why they have these different dials to indicate exactly what's happening at exactly what time. Uh, the, what I loved was the idea that there was one gear specifically devoted to showing the phase of the moon. Mm -hmm. So not only would you see the position of the moon on any given date, but you would also see what phase it was in, whether it was waxing or waning, a new moon, full moon, whatever. And and, uh, I really thought that was very clever. So, yeah, you would essentially either either refer to the dates and look at the celestial events to compare the two, or you would set it so that you would look at a specific configuration of the celestial body and then look at what date corresponded to it
2: it's um kind of amazing to imagine the complex planning and craftsmanship that went into a machine like this right because um when you start thinking about it okay say somebody set you down and told you to try to build something like this and and you had you know it was open book test you knew what time frame all these celestial events would occur in how would you do it yeah i mean God, you, so you, yeah, you would have to figure out the relationships between the sizes of gears, right, um, and the way they would interlock to create fractional relationships, yes, um, between uh, the movements of all the different bodies at the same time. And keep in mind that if this thing's reflecting, say, planets and stuff like that, well. From a geocentric point of view, mm-hmm. the movement of the planets is not just a simple circle. Right. I mean, you see them, they they process and then they go backwards. Right. And, and the machine fact, has to has reflect to count all of yeah, these things.
0: Exactly. So if you and there's a, a fellow named Michael T. Wright who built a replica of this device. And we'll talk more about him probably in a bit. But it, he there's a great video that demonstrates him using this machine to show the movement of these different uh, elements. And sometimes you see them moving kind of backward compared to other elements. And you think, wow, the gears have to account for that too. The gears have to be able to do very complex movements of these uh, these, these arms that are on these dials in order to reflect what is really happening. And while the model itself uh, does depict a geocentric view of celestial bodies, we can't be sure that the person who built it necessarily ascribed, uh, necessarily ascribed to a geocentric philosophy.
2: Oh, that's certainly true because for the device's function, I mean, it, it was, a, uh, it was functionally geocentric, right? Because it, we're on, we're earth. observing from earth. Exactly. Like the, even if the person who made it actually thought the earth went around the sun, it would still look the same yes, pretty much.
0: Because if you're reflecting how the world, how the, how the celestial, you know, uh, elements look compared to being on the earth, it makes no sense to make it anything other than geocentric. So uh, the heliocentric theories had been placed ahead of when we think this device was made. So it's possible. We don't know because uh, there were still people who, who's ascribed to a geocentric worldview.
2: I, I'd probably um, say that was dominant. Yeah, at the because,
0: because it was similar to what we would see centuries later where, to propose such a thing as a heli- heliocentric re- uh, view would mean that uh, you might suffer a little bit of a, let's say you might get ostracized, yeah, with extreme prejudice.
2: <laughs> people didn't like hearing that. <laughs> yeah.
0: So anyway, you know, it does look like it was going to show you not only the sun and moon's movements, which is already complex enough, because they don't move at the same, you know, rate, uh, or you know, they change positions. Uh, differently relative to one another, mm-hmm. uh, then to throw in the other planets makes that, or the planets that the the Greeks knew about, makes it even more complex.
2: So here's the question: Does this count as a computer?
0: I would say absolutely. I does. would
2: say so too, and I've got a little argument here. Okay, Can you tell tell me what you think of sure. it. Sure. So. Um, I'd say the basic definition of a computer. A lot of times, it's included that it's electronic. But let's take that part out and sure. say, well, whether or not it's electronic, um, a computer is like an interactive machine that can. And these words often come up: store, retrieve, and process data. That's fair. Um, so it's like input, output, and processing. Right. And storage.
0: I, yeah, I always think of it as something that can uh, can take input put it through some form of algorithm, meaning a set of rules, Mm -hmm. and then give you output on the other side. And it's predictable. It's going to do that the same way. Like, assuming that you put in the same input and you're running it through the same algorithm, Mm -hmm. you're always going to get the same output. Okay. So both definitions work very well together. Yeah. I'd say
2: the biggest distinction is that today's computers we think of as being general use. Yes. So you, you have hardware that can compute... But you've also got software to boss the hardware around so it can tell it to compute in different ways. Right.
0: So in that way, you can have a single machine allow you to do Excel spreadsheets or play, you know, a first person shooter game.
2: Right. But obviously without electronics, this, uh, this ancient computer doesn't have software. It just has hardware or it's like thinking about a computer that can only run one program, which
0: is not that difficult to imagine. I mean, if you, if you think of calculators as a subset of computers, Calculators, like your basic calculator, I'm not talking about your super crazy calculators that have apps on them and everything, but your basic calculator does basic calculator functions. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, again, taking that input, putting it through an algorithm, some sort of mathematical process, and you get an output. Similar to this device.
2: Yeah. So this device, it's like a computer that only has one job. Um, But within that job, I think it's definitely worth saying it's a computer because uh, it stores data. So the relationships between the astronomical pathways are represented by the mechanical math that's done between the teeth and the gears. So like the gear sizes Mm
0: -hmm. themselves
2: are sort of storing that data. Sure. Um, And then it takes input. You turn the hand crank to Mm -hmm. give it the input of the date you want to calculate. And then it gives you output. It's got the dials that reflect the computed values of the of what you're looking for. And
0: even as I have said before, you could do it the other way where you keep turning the dial until you get the configuration you were interested in. And then you look at the date. Yeah. Right, so it works in either sense and uh, pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's it when you think about how precise you have to be. To make sure you get this and not only that, but just the huge amount of information you have to have at your disposal to even start in the craftsmanship of this thing, mm-hmm. because the the Greeks had a lot of in, of information about astronomy, some of it they got from the Babylonians. Mm-hmm. So the Babylonians were known as very much interested in astronomy. The Greeks were as well. And so they had to have had all this observation data that they had, the things that they had observed about the movement of celestial objects in the sky and how those patterns would arise in order for them to plan that out into a mechanical device. And that, to me, is really amazing because you're not talking about, oh, you know, every four weeks, this one event happens. No, some of these cycles, like I said, are incredibly long. You had a 19-year cycle. You had a 76-year cycle. You had a 54-year cycle. All of these were were taken into account to explain... The movement of celestial objects, uh, in various ways, whether it's a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse or that you get both a lunar and a solar eclipse within a certain amount of time, uh, not to mention the movement of the other planets. That's a lot of information that you have to have compiled before you ever cut into a sheet of bronze. Uh, yes, it certainly
2: is. And, and even harder is imagining how you would begin to compute that data. When, yeah. I mean, nobody, um, well, actually, this is a good question. Um, had anybody ever made anything like this before? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we don't know for sure.
0: Right. Well, we don't have evidence. This is the earliest existing device. In fact, we, we don't have any other devices to point to. Uh, and let's be clear, when we're
2: calling it the earliest known computer, that, that doesn't mean we think that there is nothing that, like this, that could have come before it. Right. It just means the, it's the earliest one that we have. Exactly. We know about. So,
0: and we don't have any others. It's not like there are, you know, 20 other examples of this. In fact, if you want to look at, for another object that's as complex as this one, you have to go about 1500 years further into the early Renaissance and look at the Middle East, China, and Europe for devices that start to uh, equal this level of complexity. Yeah. However, these,
2: uh, these historians of uh, mechanical engineering they say this kind of stuff doesn't show up until late medieval clockwork. Right. It's like the 1300s. Yeah.
0: At at the earliest. Yeah. So when you take that into account, you think, well, you know, is this is this an anomaly? Is it a one-off? Did some mad genius come up with this? But if you if you were to actually carefully examine those gears, and we'll talk more about how people have done that over the last decade or so, if you were to very carefully examine them, you would see that they appear to have been made flawlessly. Like there were no mistakes. Uh, it, you know, a lot of experts have said that if you were to build, say, a clock and it's your first clock, it may be a functional clock. But if you were to look at the clockwork, you might see where there were mistakes that were made and then corrected for later on. There, there's no evidence of that in this device, which suggests that whoever built it had done it at least a few times before to perfect the whole process before building another one.
2: Yeah. And combined with the fact that this thing is just so smart yeah, that uh, it suggests it was probably not the only one of its kind. It probably came from a line of similar devices, maybe of advancing complexity.
0: And you might think, well, if this is the case... Where the heck is everything else? And, well, some of it could just be lost or destroyed. And also, being made out of (laughs) uh, bronze means that it's a valuable resource, which occasionally, for other purposes, like, I don't know, war, you would melt down so that you could use it for other stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, think about We're talking about the first and second century BCE in the Hellenistic world. I mean, it's it's a time when stuff might have gotten grabbed and taken to another place melted uh, yeah. down
0: or just lost, just, yeah. just like just like this one was lost. There's a lot fact, of
2: stuff going on. If
0: you look at, uh, and uh, we should mention this, uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class, an, oh, yeah. a sister podcast, they did an episode on this same topic. Fantastic episode. Highly recommend it. You should definitely go listen to it. Um But one of the things they pointed out was that if you look at bronze statues from that era, there are very, very few of them. And I think like nine out of ten came from shipwrecks. Because the ones that were left on land more frequently than not had been melted down for other purposes. Hmm. So it's, it's one of those, you, there was not necessarily a sense of permanency in this time of the world.
2: Okay. So we don't have like, uh, in terms of archaeology, uh, another device like this from the time. Has anybody ever described a device like this from the time?
0: Uh, that's a good question. Do you have any actual information on that? Because well, I, when I was looking for it, I was uh, it seemed to me at the time that everyone was absolutely shocked by this device because it didn't seem to have any kind of uh, to, shock, shock to the point where they were wondering if it was perhaps a hoax that maybe someone had planted this thing and it was a fake but but it may be that, that there are uh, sources I'm unaware of. Do you know any? Well, I think there are
2: ancient descriptions of orreries. Okay. Uh, so those are uh wouldn't be exactly like this, but uh sort of ancient models of the movement of the planets.
0: Interesting. So it yeah, and of course we do know that there were philosophers who had described uh the very motions that this device enacted. That it that you know they were they were just describing it for. Uh, scholarly purposes and this device would show that in action if you were to move the handle
2: well here's an interesting question who built this thing
0: yeah uh where did it come from we don't we don't know uh is the short answer we have some suspicions uh sometimes the name archimedes gets thrown around there
2: yeah um so one clue is just that Archimedes, he, he was around, you know, a century before this and he was a genius inventor and, uh, or
0: at least. We assume so. <laughs> Some of his inventions we cannot actually be certain were ever built, but sure.
2: Oh, yes. come on. He built a death ray. Just, just, okay, just admit fine, it. Fine, fine. He, he built, built a death, death ray.
0: Uh, okay, probably.
2: And a giant Maybe arm. Maybe not.
0: A giant arm that would upset uh, <laughs> besieging ships. <laughs> I want to believe. I, I understand.
2: Okay, so, uh, well... It, is that the only evidence that it might have been Archimedes? Well, no Archimedes, as you might remember, was from, uh, he lived in Syracuse. Yes. In the,
0: which uh, is unfortunate.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunate for Archimedes. Yes. Uh, he lived in Syracuse and an interesting fact about the device that we discovered later is that, uh, okay. So the device has inscriptions all over it.
0: Very faint inscriptions. They're
2: hard to read because of all the corrosion from the thousands of years. Yeah. But, uh, what they discovered was, oh, okay, actually we can make out some of these with some of this imaging we're about to talk about uh, yeah. in the next section. And it's uh, in Koine Greek. So that was sort of like Koine Greek was the lingua franca of the uh, Hellenistic world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people spoke it all over the place. But the calendar that was represented on here right. reflected the kind of calendar that would be used in the Ionian area, which would include Syracuse. Right.
0: So that, that gives at least some Again, circumstantial evidence that perhaps Archimedes could have been involved in this. Then
2: again, Archimedes probably died too early to have made this particular device. Yeah,
0: due to an overzealous soldier.
2: We know he died in, uh, I think, uh, 212 BCE. Yeah. And the device was made in the Prob- second century. Yeah, probably late- sometime
0: between 150 and 100 BCE. So Right. Uh, so yeah, that does put some... He, he
2: died too early to have personally made it.
0: Right. Maybe he made an earlier one.
2: Yeah. And that's one idea is that it could have come out of a sort of uh, a Syracuse based school of Archimedes. Yep. Maybe like.
0: And again, the Island of Rhodes is another example that people have have uh, presented saying that they were very much uh, on that island. There was a a scholarly center that was devoted to astronomy and that they also had craftsmen who worked in clockwork type devices. So it's possible that it could have originated from that area. Uh, we just we don't know. There's some clues there, but we we don't know for sure.
2: Yeah. Um. Another name I just want to mention real quick that gets brought up is uh Hi- Hipparchus. Hipparchus. Uh. Hipparchus. Of uh of Nicaea. Yep. And uh he was a Greek astronomer, mm-hmm. um, and geographer, and he he did the maths. Yes. Um, he was a smart guy. Yeah. Uh, trigonometry, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: He well, he was also uh. Well, he wasn't Hippocrates, but anyway, he <laughs> he uh, he also was uh, known for describing the movements of the sun and the moon. So, right.
2: And uh, and some indications that uh, it maybe could have had something to do with him or that uh, the astronomical theories that are reflected in this, including like the uh, movement of the moon mm-hmm. reflects his thoughts right. about the movement. So of the moon.
0: it may not be that he had a direct hand in it, but that perhaps a student or someone familiar with his work. Uh, took the theory and put it into a, a, a physical object.
2: Okay, Uh, but I have another theory about who created it.
0: Yeah, I have a feeling I know what you're going <laughs> to say, but hit me with it, buddy.
2: Okay, well, it goes like this. This mechanism is way too advanced to have been built by human beings at the time. Obviously, it was built by A, aliens, B, time traveler, C, transdimensional reptilians right so um or or sorry d um like a super advanced secret human society that we don't know about like atlantis w-
0: but we do know about them <laughs> we don't think they exist all right so all right and joe i know you're you're presenting this as a in tongue-in-cheek because you and i share a a common opinion on this about Not. how it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I to... think it is
2: nonsense to assume this. Yeah, but... for one
0: thing, it, it really it really says a lot about the cynicism of people when it comes to the creativity of human beings and ingenuity and our ability to process complex thoughts and bring them into reality. You know, yeah. I mean, it's the same argument that, oh, the pyramids, no human could have built those actually thousands of humans built those <laughs> tens of thousands of humans built those.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's not like somebody in ancient Greece building a warp drive. I right. mean, it's it's somebody who was building something that was totally available to someone with the technology of the time. All they had to be was really, really smart.
0: Right. Yeah. They, we know that the astronomical knowledge was there. You know, the the scholarship was there. Uh, we know that the uh, bronze working was there. We know that people, there were craftsmen who well, could. Well, generally
2: it wasn't as good as this.
0: But... Right. But there were craftsmen who could create incredible works yeah. out of bronze. Uh, um, now, a so lot of those haven't survived because of, again, the fact that people would melt stuff down. But the ones that have survived have shown that there's, you know, there has, there was a level of artistry there.
2: Yeah. It's, I think the bottom line is it's quite exceptional for its time, sure. but it's not unthinkable.
0: No. And so, uh, we are discounting the, uh, the alien slash time traveler slash reptilian. Also, I hypothesis. mean, if it
2: was from aliens, you'd think that, you know, it would uh, reflect a, a little more complete astronomical knowledge. You, you it would might think, be electronic or you something. You think also
0: it wouldn't be geocentric. Yeah. Why? <laughs> though, would As aliens... we talked
2: about it, you know, it's functionally geocentric, even though the person who made it might have been. Right. But was,
0: why would an alien bother to make something from Earth's perspective? when? Right. Oh, they,
2: yeah. They could make an orrery from the outside. Right. right. Including the Earth revolving around the sun. Yeah. Uh,
0: why would they do? Yeah. Yeah, I don't It doesn't make sense to me. Not so.
2: knowing about planets past Saturn.
0: Right. You know, the, well, maybe they just thought those were those were not really high up on the, yeah, the list. Those to are go the and crappy visit. planets. Yeah, you don't want to yeah. you don't want to visit those. <laughs> yeah. So I think we can discount the whole alien hypothesis. So uh, we've got more we want to talk about exactly. We want to we want to cover how it is that we actually know this stuff. But before we get into that, let's take another quick break and thank our sponsor. Running a business is no cakewalk. All right, so we have discussed what it was. We discussed how it worked. How do we know that it did this thing? I mean, you, you know, you're talking about a giant hunk of corroded bronze. How could you possibly ever figure out what this thing actually did?
2: Yeah, as we already... Im- mentioned people originally did not know they had no idea what this hunk was capable
0: of for a century we really didn't know we had some people make some guesses occasionally but for the most part uh, it wasn't until we were able to use something far more sophisticated than just our own eyeballs to look at it we had to use x-rays and with the x-rays initially uh, the x-rays showed that there were lots of gears inside this hunk of corroded bronze and that they were connected in some way but those early x-rays We're not perfect. Mostly they due to the fact that you couldn't tell depth with it. So you couldn't see how the gears were connected. It was like a mass of gears, but you weren't sure where where they were in relation to one another.
2: Um but enter something called 3D X-ray. Yeah, where you start computerized tomography. Yeah, you start CT scan. scan. Yeah,
0: scanning it from all different angles using different approaches. Did you did you come across the uh powerful X-ray machines called Blade Runner? No, I didn't. Yeah, Yeah, so Blade Runner X-ray machines, all right. They use lots of different X-ray machines throughout the study of this device. As we began to learn that this was far more important from a historical perspective than anyone had uh had thought. Leading up to this, I mean, everyone was thinking that these other artifacts were really important. And this other thing was a curiosity. But as we learned more about it, we realized, whoa, this thing is amazing. Uh, well, the the various X-ray devices we use showed more of the relation of all these different gears. So we got to see how they were laid out inside this hunk of corroded bronze. But the Blade Runner <laughs> device. All right. So it, it was an X-ray machine that was designed To look for tiny cracks in turbine blades. That's what the original design of these machines was for.
2: And to tell whether or not you're a replicant.
0: Also to tell whether or not, yeah, it would ask you if a turtle is on its back, what do you do?
2: Why doesn't the mechanism turn the turtle over?
0: Yeah, Uh, so anyway, it would look for these tiny, it was designed so that you could detect the tiniest of cracks in turbine blades so that you could do maintenance before a catastrophic failure. They used it to look at this device, the Antikythera, Antikythera device. We, I keep avoiding saying it so that I don't fall over myself. Let's, Let's say it three times together, Jonathan. All right. Antikythera, 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 Antikythera. Antikythera. Okay, so the Antikythera. Oh, God, it's
2: a demon. <laughs> <laughs> it's this Greek demon. That's
0: right, uh, fantastic. All right, now you have to say it backwards. No, um, So the Antikythera device, the Blade Runner thing, it, it looks at it, and it actually is able to see because it has such... Uh, precise measurements. It's able to, to, to distinguish what the tiny shallow carvings are on those dials. That's how we were able to read the words. Oh, the inscriptions. The inscriptions. Yeah. Okay. Because some of them were just very faded already, even before you talk about the corrosion e- effort in there or element in there, I should say. And the Blade Runner x-rays were able to measure these very tiny changes in the surface of these different dials and that's how we were able to see what the writing was and thus able to really um uh, translate it and figure out what this thing actually did and that's how people once they started reading it once they started being able to read the the writing it became clear that this was a far more sophisticated device than what what predecessors were thinking now, even the earliest guesses were things that uh, it probably can predict Solar and lunar movements, or maybe it's some form of calendar, but it, it, no one was really aware of how sophisticated it was until we were able to take this closer look. And I think it's pretty phenomenal what we've learned about it so far. Like those shallow engravings have told us pretty much everything we need to know about its basic function. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how we're able to draw some conclusions, including the conclusions that Led Michael T. Wright to build his replica of the the device to the point where uh, he's got a working replica. Uh, it it uh, as far as we can tell, it's uh, as accurate uh, to the uh, original as we can possibly get. Uh, yeah, you should look this up on
2: YouTube and see it because it's not just a model; I mean, it is a working replica. Yeah, he, he he built the machine.
0: He he used very similar methods as to what the ancient Greeks would have. He used the same sort of dimension of gears, uh, you know, keeping in mind that we don't he's working from an incomplete model. Even mm-hmm. with our very, very sophisticated techniques these days, you can't see what's not there. Right. There's still some missing pieces that we don't really have. You know, he was able to recreate it based upon what we think the device was meant to do and his works Yeah, and it, the videos are. Amazing When you watch the just the minute movements of each of these pieces in relation to one another and think of how complex this is, it's mind blowing. It's well, and it's also it's a it's a gorgeous device. Yeah. You know, it's just it's a beautiful device. You would look at it and you might think originally if you were just to glance at it, you might think it was either a really weird clock or maybe some sort of navigational equipment for like a ship or something just because you've got bronze and wood there, but um, yeah, once you get uh, a deeper understanding of what it is, it's pretty, pretty nifty.
2: I think the, the replica was made with, uh, brass instead of bronze. I think
0: you're right. I think yeah. it was brass instead of bronze. So yeah, even more <laughs> ship-like than with, uh, the brass and, and wood, uh, combination.
2: Yeah. Uh, there's recent scholarship going on with a project called the Antikythera Mechanism Research Project. Yep.
0: That's a collaborative project between lots of different, uh, research organizations and individuals.
2: Uh, yeah, there's a mathematician named Tony Freeth. And uh, he's uh, been using uh, imaging technology to uh, get to the bottom of questions that remain about the mechanism.
0: Yeah, uh, they the the group, the research group was founded in 2005 and has been extremely active. Yeah. Uh, they have sponsored several museum exhibitions throughout the world. I think right now, as of the recording of this podcast, uh, at least some of the device is on display in uh, in a, a museum in Athens. Uh, but I believe that ends in January 2014. Yeah, it's the uh, it's an exhibition called the Antikythera Shipwreck, the ship,
2: the treasures and the mechanism. And it's at the National Archaeological Museum in Athens, Greece.
0: Yeah. And so that, of course, has more than than the device itself. It also has examples of the other stuff that was found in that shipwreck, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, people have gone back to that shipwreck and and found more things around it since that initial 1900 discovery. Um And so there's, there, there's also been a lot of uh, symposia that they've held. Uh, they've had a lot of gatherings where they, they combine research and they publish that research. There's lots of information on their website about the device and the circumstances around its discovery and just the process of discovery as we used more and more sophisticated, uh, techniques to examine it. And it's really a great resource I, I highly recommend visiting that website I'll link to that on our Facebook page and Twitter handle uh, so you guys can see it because it's pretty neat stuff I mean it's um <laughs> you know I, I I really enjoyed reading about the process they went through uh, as they would learn more and more and of course that hasn't finished in fact there's there's one thing one question besides who built it that we don't know the answer to yet which is why did they build it like mm-hmm. why is it was it what what was the end purpose was it a a scholarly tool was it so that they could uh create you know specifically plan out events to coincide with celestial events so that perhaps it was a political tool you know maybe if uh if an eclipse is seen as a bad omen you may want to avoid planning some big event around an eclipse just so that people don't think that the event itself is cursed. I mean, it's
2: I'm sure in the ancient world, you could probably get some amount of power just by being able to accurately predict eclipses.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's another possibility. It could just be religious power or political power. We don't know. And it's possible that as much as we can learn about this device, maybe we never really figure out with any degree of certainty who built it. Or why it was built. In fact, I'd be amazed if we ever are able to figure out who built it. That would be phenomenal to me. Uh, unless someone's like, Oh, look here. There's an inscription on the bottom. <laughs> Johan from Sweden. What? That would, that'd be a big upset.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: But I, not that I think that would ever happen, but, um, yeah, I, mean, I, I
2: it was, I want to float another possibility. Okay. Steampunks.
0: All yeah, right. Yeah. So
2: steampunk it's, cosplayers it's, built go, this. Yeah.
0: But I'm thinking that it was a steampunk convention a certain doctor showed up at it <laughs> accidentally ended up grabbing this device and on a further adventure maybe 3 episodes down the line ended up accidentally dunking it into the ocean off the coast of Greece that's exactly yeah. what happened um explains everything uh did you see the the lego oh i device?
2: did oh, really cool now this wasn't we probably might not want to call it a replica. Right. Because it's not trying to copy the form of the original, just the function.
0: Right. And even the function, it was, I think, a limited part of it because it was really showing things like eclipses in the uh, in the the Lego version. I don't think it necessarily showed all the movements that the uh, Antikythera device showed, because uh, w- when I watched the video, I was like, this is really clever because it would show you the the date and uh, when the, the next eclipse would occur. Whether it was solar or lunar or both, but, uh, it didn't, um, uh, both as in like the, a region of time when both would occur, not both occurring at the same time, <laughs> um, necessarily, uh, but the, uh, the, it didn't <laughs> tell you things, it didn't tell you things like the movement of the planets as far as I could tell. So it was, it, it had a limited set of functions that the Antikythera device actually did, but, um, uh, it was still really cool to
2: watch. Oh, it was really cool. Let me tell you, I'm going to, ed- Invented device and it's going to tell you, it'll predict when the sun passes in front of the moon. That'll
0: be a bad day. <laughs> I'm going to make sure I stay indoors that day. What, what is that called? That's called like a, <laughs> I think that's, a, I think that's called, uh, uh, well, it doesn't really matter because di- we're not satanic eclipse. <laughs> that's, that's, essentially called, uh, boy, it sure is vaporized outside today, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no, that would not, not go over well. Well, that kind of wraps up our discussion about this amazing device. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was fun for us to look at something that was from the ancient world. Uh, remember you can write to us and suggest your own topics. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com. You can follow us on our social networks. We are, you know, the ones that we're on, not the ones that belong to us. I say that every time, but Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Our handle there is techstuff HSW. Joe, of course, they can listen to the two of us and Lauren on the forward thinking audio podcast and yeah, uh, come on by. Yeah. Go to fwthinking.com sometime. You can check out that site. We've got the videos their blogs, podcasts. If you enjoy tech stuff, I have a feeling you would really dig forward thinking. So go check that out too. And we will talk to you again really soon.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything.